Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here's the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer, and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing the 1985 film The Kiss of the Spider Woman along with the novel it was based on by the 1976 Argentinian author Manuel Puig. But first, we're going to tell you all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have webpage at pagesandpopcornpodcast.com, where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect with us on our Facebook or our Twitter page. They're both searchable by typing in Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to take a second to thank our patrons, the patrons at the $1 level and our patrons at the $5 level. You guys really help this show continue to happen. So thank you so much and look for some perks that are coming your way at both of those levels, including a schedule with upcoming titles so that you can read ahead of the class. We also want to invite anybody who's interested in supporting this podcast. A really easy way to do it is to support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And you can support us at a dollar a month. You can support us at $5 a month. Heck, you can send us a check if you really feel like that's the way you want to do it. But we would love your donations and your support because that helps us continue to continue to do this. And we really want to encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. Now, on with the show. Today we are going to be talking about Kiss of the Spider-Woman. And Jennifer, I think you picked this, right? Out of our list, yes. Okay, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you put it on our list because... Honestly, this book and this movie were not on my radar at all. I had never heard of either one of them. I read the book maybe 10 years ago, 
Okay. And I knew that there was a movie based on it, but I hadn't seen the movie. I just had read this book a while ago. So I knew it was one of those that should probably be put on the list. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I drew the short straw and get to do our recap today. So here we go. The recap of The Kiss of the Spider Woman. Now, I'm going to start with the book's recap, and I have to say that the book is written in an interesting narrative style. <laughs> Instead of having there be description and dialogue, exposition built through details, the book is completely dialogue for the first seven chapters. In chapter eight, we get a change, but I'll get there in a second. The dialogue isn't even have, does not even have conversational tags, so there's no he said, he said, he exclaimed, he shouted, he murmured. No, it is literally just the dialogue. It is just the words. We don't even have quotation marks, okay? That can make it a little hard to follow, but we'll talk more about that later. Eventually, the book shifts um, out of just the dialogue, and what we have is sort of... Um, Stream of consciousness style. We have that as well, but we also have a transcription of conversations that happen between two characters. And so, but it's typed out kind of like a play, but just like character's name, colon, the words, character's name, colon, the words. And then, like Jennifer so said, we have stream of consciousness that happens. And then towards the end, we have the notes that are taken by the secret police. So it's a, an official report that's being submitted with some description, subject as this, subject as that, but without that, um, connection to to it and obviously there's no dialogue in that part so that's really interesting and then the other part about the book before we even get to the plot is that there are footnotes which we will talk about but fully 11 percent of this book is footnotes and they are long they're not just one or two sentences but they are chapters in and of themselves which makes it impossible to read two things at once you basically have to pick what you're going to read in this chapter the footnote and then go back and read the, the story or get to the story and then read the footnote. So that's a stylistic choice that I'm sure we will have lots to say about. But because of all of that, recapping a bit of a challenge. So I'm going to do um, some major plot points. But then also because the movie really stuck to the same major plot points, um, my recap is a little bit different this time. So here we go. The, the recap of the book's plot. Two prisoners, Louis Molina and Valentin, share a cell in a Buenos Aires prison. Molina is a gay man. And he's in jail for corruption of a minor, while Valentin is a political prisoner who is part of a revolutionary group trying to overthrow the government. The two characters, seemingly opposites in every way, form an intimate bond in their cell. Their relation changes, both of them in profound ways. Molina recounts various films that he has seen to Valentin in order to help them forget their situation and as a form of escape. Toward the middle of the novel, the reader finds out that Molina is actually a spy planted in Valentin's cell to befriend him and try to extract information about his organization and the movement. Valentin is really sick and yes, in the poopy diarrhea sort of way. And Molina is not disgusted by this. He cares for Valentin. He knows that the food is being poisoned and he at one point even takes on and eats the food himself to waylay suspicion. So, but um, he gets provisions from the outside for the cooperation cooperations of the officials in the prison in hopes of keeping up appearances that his mother's coming to visit him and giving him food. And then this is a reason for him to get out of the cell and go talk to the warden and report on Valentin. And he shares his food with Valentin. It's a lot of his acts of general kindness, the sharing of the food, the telling of the stories, the taking care of Valentin when he's sick, that leads Valentin to eventually engage in an intimate sexual act twice with Melina as a form of returned kindness. So there is definitely the gay sex. 
I'm going to take a quick break from the chronological part of this recap to tell you about the films because they're very important. So throughout the course of the novel, Molina talks about five different, well, technically six different films, and he recreates their stories for Valentine. And so I'm going to touch on them real briefly. The first film it's based on the movie Cat People, which was a 1942 real movie. During the narration, the reader finds out that Valentine sympathizes with the secretary because of his long lost love, because this character is the unrequited lover. The film is about a, a woman, a panther woman, who cannot love because if she does, she will destroy her lover by turning into a panther and devouring and killing him. She's married to an architect, but they never consummate because of her fears. He eventually leaves her for that secretary, and the panther lady kills her psychiatrist after he kisses her and then is in turn killed by an actual panther that she lets up free from the zoo. And the architect and the secretary live happily ever after. The second film that Molina talks about is based on a Nazi propaganda film. This is not an actual film. Uh, but in this pretend film, a French woman falls in love with a noble Aryan officer and then dies in his arms after being shot by the French resistance. The film is a clear piece of Nazi propaganda but it's important to note that Molina doesn't really see it as Nazi propaganda. He's disinclined to look past the romance uh, and the story of it and doesn't even recognize that there are people in it that who are, are, you know, being exploited and hurt. That doesn't matter to him. It's all about the romance. Um, and we can talk about why. So the third film concerns a young revolutionary with a penchant for racing cars. He meets a sultry older woman. His father's later kidnapped by gorillas with his paramour's aid. The boy um, attempts to rescue his father. He ends up dying in a shootout with the police. So disillusioned, the young boy joins the gorillas. So, okay, that was obviously a, a film that Valentin really was much more interested in as opposed to all these romantic stories that Molina is spinning. The fourth film is based on another real film, a 1943 film called I Walked with a Zombie. And it is a rich man who marries a woman, brings her to an island home. There his new bride discovers that there's a witch doctor who's been doing voodoo and turning people into zombies. It's eventually revealed the man's first wife was seduced by the witch doctor and turned into a zombie. Reunited with his first wife, the man proclaims his love for her. He's ultimately killed by the witch doctor. And then the new wife escapes and is going to live happily ever after with a sea captain. It's important to note this is not actually how the movie ends or what actually happens in the movie. Melina is not an, a reliable narrator at all for these films. So the fifth film that Melina calls is a love story of a newspaper man. He falls in love with the wife of a mafia boss. So he stops his newspaper from running a potentially embarrassing story about her, and then they run away. They're unable to support themselves because she left her rich mafia boss behind. So anyways, he get, he falls ill. There's a bunch of stuff happens. So eventually she becomes a prostitute so that they can have food and, and take care of him. And when he finds out, he's distraught and angry, and he leaves her. And then her mafia boss husband finds her and is overwhelmed because of her sacrifice. And obviously, she must really love this other man if she's willing to denigrate herself in this way. So he gives her back all her jewelry so she can be happy. Now she has to find her asshole of a lover. I'm sorry, I judged the, the guy that she was with. She does, and in the end, he dies anyways, and she goes off into that whatever. Okay, it's beautiful, Melina says, in a romantic, overly melodramatic sort of way. The last movie is um, about the spider woman and we'll get there in a second. So over the course of these movies, the men bond and we learn stuff. We learn that Molina's a mama's boy. Val is in love with a woman named Marta, not his compatriot Lydia, but he is all about the cause and, and he has this, this, this need to be this revolutionary. It's a very tied into his identity. And the men do have sex more than once. 
And for his cooperation, Molina is eventually paroled. And on the day he leaves, Valentin asks Molina to take a message to his revolutionary group on the outside. And then Molina requests that he receive a kiss because all of their sexual encounters at this point have been uh, in the dark and fully physical but not romantic and the kiss is a a romantic symbol for Melina. Anyways, the request is given, the request is is accepted and yes, there is a kiss and it is sweet and Melina also agrees to deliver the message. Little does he know that on the outside he's being followed by the secret police who are trying to find the location of Val's group. Melina dies after being shot by Valentin's group at the rendezvous point when the secret police disrupt the assignment. The novel ends in Valentin's consciousness after he's been giving morphine by a sympathetic nurse and he imagines himself sailing away with his beloved Marta. The sixth film, which is The Kiss of the Spider Woman, that's where we get our name, is uh, Melina is... is very distraught at the fact that he's going to be leaving Valentine when he's going to get paroled. So he starts telling the story and it's the the spider woman and she's this beautiful woman who's trapped in her own web and she's on an island and she finds a man and she, you know, is there and kisses him. And it's all very, very, very romantic and very, very overwrought with the symbolism. That's the novel without going into the footnotes because I hated the footnotes so much, but we'll talk about those. But again, 11% of this novel was footnotes that we'll have to talk about. So the movie, the movie recap is very similar. Again, we have the two in the prison. Valentina is brusque and tortured. Melina is femme and uses film to escape. But in this, there's only two films, the, the pro- Nazi propaganda film. And we as the audience get to see this film as Melina tells it. It's much more fleshed out. And basically, we get to see it in tandem with what's being acted out in the prison. Uh, Sophia Barga is the the actress who's in this. She is Lenny, who's the French woman who falls in love with the German Werner and eventually dies in his arms. Lenny also plays the part of Marta because in the movie, we get a lot of flashbacks to the real world, the outside world. And so we actually meet Marta, who is Valentine's love at the same in the movie as he is in the book. She is in the book. And then Lenny also plays, or sorry, <laughs> Sophia Barga also plays the Spider Woman when uh, Melina gets to just talking about that movie as well. So over the course of the movie the, and the telling of the Nazi propaganda movie, the men bond slowly. Again, the food is poison. Again, Melina is a plant. Valentine tells of his love for Marta. Remember, she's not part of the resistance. She wanted him to leave the movement. Uh, again, she's in contrast to his compatriot girlfriend, Lydia. In the movie, we get way more about the political outside. We get way more about the prison. We get flashbacks to life before prison for both men. Like in the book on his last night in the cell, Molina says that he's in love with Valentine, and he tells of the story of the Spider Woman film. A beautiful Spider Woman trapped by her own web discovers a shipwrecked man. They share intimacy because of his stories and his kindness, sharing his food and taking care of the diuretic Valentine when he's very, very sick. This does lead Valentine to to take part in this intimate sexual act. Eventually, Melina is granted parole and a surprise move by the secret police and Valentine provides Melina with a telephone number and a message for his comrades. Melina is at first refuses to take the number, fearing the consequences for treason, but he relents, bidding Valentine farewell with a kiss. And it is the same thing, the same request for a kiss. Melina is sad on the outside, eventually makes the call, sets up the meet, puts his affairs in order, and on the day of the meet, Melina sees the deputy and the other secret police. He knows he's being followed. He meets up with Lydia in the secret police attack. Shots are fired. Melina runs and is shot by Lydia. He falls to his knees next to some very blasé birds who apparently weren't afraid of all the gunshots. 
In the car, the deputy tries to threaten Molina. He's got a gun to his face. He's like, I'm not going to take you to the hospital unless you tell me. And he calls him a fag. But Molina just sits there and very quietly closes his eyes and dies. He does not give in. He is He's brave in his final moment. As a reward, his body is dumped in a pile of trash. In the prison, Valentine is being tortured and then ends up in the infirmary and a kind nurse gives him morphine. He hallucinates Marta coming to break him out and then they run away into the Spider-Woman movie set and he tells her that he loves her and they row away in a boat together. The end. There are no footnotes in the movie. Hooray. (laughs) So, how did you really feel about this? Okay, so (laughs) the narrative structure of the book was interesting. It was definitely an experimental book. And that's great. And I think experimental books are important. But it it was still frustrating. I still sometimes got a little lost into who was talking and who was what, especially at the beginning. Thankfully, we had these long periods of time where it was basically just the, the movie recap. And Melina's on and on and on. But I found myself being very interested in the movies and not in some ways, more interested because that was a narrative plot. It was moving forward. There were plot points in the movies, whereas opposed to the actual plot of the book felt very slow for the first half. Then we got into the the, the footnotes and the footnotes are just awful. I, I really didn't like them. I guess we should talk about them because we're here and we keep referencing them. So, okay, the footnotes, they, they, for the most part, they're real. There are a couple fictional ones. Okay. And- but let's talk about what they are. Before, yeah. Yeah. So they're academic, and they are for late 70s. Uh, They are what was considered cutting edge of the field. But they are very old by our standard. Right. They're psychiatrist academic stuff talking about why people are gay, basically. And there's like, well, there's this theory, and then this psychiatrist says this, and then there's this theory, and this psychiatrist says this. And did you know that... That it's all, not only is it outdated, which you can forgive it for the time and the place, but like Jennifer just said, some of them are real. Freud was a real person. He had these theories. But then there's a couple, there's, what is it, the West, not the West one, but the other one, there's one that isn't real at all. It's not, he just made it up. So that diminishes, you can't say here's a bunch of research, but then I've put in some fake ones because that really undermines the whole thing. And that I found that very frustrating. And also it was so academic. And I feel like it was there because the author was like, I'm a gay man. I'm writing about gay people and I need the audience to be okay with gay people. And I'm writing this in the seventies and maybe some people aren't. So I'm going to try to justify the gayness. And I just, I felt, I mean, obviously in 2019, just when we're recording this, I didn't feel like you have to do that. But again, time and place, fine. The author made a choice. I just, I found them distracting and frustrating. And I don't They weren't even very good at justifying anything. No! It's like homosexuality is the result of bad parenting or dysfunctional childhood or, you know, there's something wrong. That's why you would become a homosexual. So it's not even trying to justify. It's just saying, well, this is... Well, and and in the placement, it would be like at the time when Melina is cleaning up Valentine. Valentine's had horrible diarrhea. He's horribly embarrassed and disgusted with himself. And Melina's taking care of him. And he's like, Mm -hmm. it's okay. Here, I'll wipe you down. It's fine. You're okay. Which could just be a very sweet thing. It it could be, you could say intimate, but not in a sexual intimate, but like in a caring for a person way. It's a humanity thing. And then this footnote's like, well, you know, gay people never get past the phase in life where they're obsessed with their shit. So people play with poop and then that's why they're gay. And you're like, 
oh my god shut up footnotes because that's not the point he's a human and i feel like without that you would have gotten more about melina being a human he was doing things because he's a freaking human who is gay and not because he's a gay person obsessed with poop and i just i really didn't like them Okay, so from my side, when I'm looking at this as a piece of literature, it reminds me a lot of Valentine and Melina's dialogue, where Melina is this romantic. And even when he looks at a movie that's just propaganda and fairly ugly propaganda, he sees the romance in it. And then there's Valentine going, no, this is propaganda. What are you doing? So you're seeing this as, you know, this is actually a really nice scene where they're caring for each other and that's great and then all of a sudden here's this dry academic thing and that's what it kind of reminds me of is the novel drawing those kind of parallels between what is fantasy what's reality and which one do you live in i i kind of concede that a little bit i I, especially since you put me in the molina place and that's okay (laughs) i'll i'll yay molina it is a very motherly position he is in, which, again, again I find it kind of then ironic. There's, because- then there's all the footnotes about how, oh, well, you know, the stunted adolescent, blah, blah, blah. Like, and Melina mm. has a mommy issue. So, uh, I mean, can we, are we, can we talk about the characterization? I feel like, Mal- okay, so it's so unfair because I know that this was written in a time and a place and I know it was written to do a specific thing and I don't, I didn't read it in that time and the place. I'm coming to it so far later that I can't say, well, it succeeded or it didn't or or anything. I can just say reading it now, all gay people don't have mommy issues. And and I and and let's let's not forget that Molina's in prison for corrupting a minor. And they they Gabriel they, isn't even a minor. That's what he was in for. But, no, yeah. I know, but okay, because I feel like there's two separate things. Because in the in the in the book and the movie both, they talk about how he was like in love with this waiter who's an adult man, blah, blah, blah. But he, but he's in, in for corruption of a minor. And you have to wonder, like, was he actually doing something to, to children? Cause that's okay. First of all, I know that that's a thing that people assume that all gay men are pedophiles, which also is very, very incorrect. I know that that sometimes is code for other things. I will say in the movie, he said, that he was in there for corruption of minor. It's all over the news. And then the warden was like, when, you, when he was get, letting him out, he was like, stay away from the children. And he was like, yeah, no more hanky panky with the little kids. And so that made it sound like it wasn't just code for homosexual acts. It was actually doing something with the minor. So now we've got this, our gay character with the mommy issues, who's not afraid of poop, who may or may not diddling little children, and who's the spy. And I mean, like, oh my God, like... And then who dies? This is like all the bad gay tropes in one place. And again, time and place, fine. But as 2019 queer woman, I'm like, oh, cringing. cringe, cringe, cringe. Yeah, and I kind of take the novel a little bit more of this is fossil of history. So yeah, there's a lot of things that are very cringeworthy. I am. I would be much more bothered if this were written today. Oh, yeah. But since it's 1978, you know, and there's so much misunderstanding. So, like, one of the ones that you mentioned was, oh, if you're homosexual, you must be a pedophile. And so even if he isn't, 
that's what people are going to think. And that's a lot of what's going on in the novels. You don't know what is entirely real. The characters don't even know what's entirely real. Yes, that not only are they unreliable narrators of their own stories and of the stories that they're choosing to tell each other, but then because we only get the dialogue, which is interesting that we since we only get the dialogue, we don't have a context to put things in. Yeah, and you really do have to invent a lot as you're reading. Mm-hmm. Because you'll get hints that he's crying and this is done by ellipses. Or you'll or someone ha- saying don't cry. Yeah, and then you'll you'll just have to kind of intuit based on how they're responding to each other. Yes, definitely, and that can be very powerful. It can also be frustrating. It's also kind of meta because that's kind of the point: is how much are you putting into something? How much of this is your own construct? Definitely. And and then I also thought that we were trapped in just the words and trapped in the dialogue in the same way that they were trapped in the prison where all they had was their words. Mm-hmm. And for the first little bit, I thought they were in complete darkness. And then it, it came out, no, there's light and Valentine has books and he studies and, you know, they've got food from the outside. So it's not the prison like it's it's interesting. Like it, it's definitely a, a time and a place sort of prison. It's not how I imagine prison nowadays either, you know. But and it's also not an American prison. Right. Yeah. That too. There is a lot of torture that goes on in this. Yeah, but again, all a lot, all of it's off screen because mm-hmm. we don't see it and we don't really get talked about too much to it. Which so then adapting something that was just all words into a film was uh, quite the undertaking. I think they did a great job with certain things. They I, had okay. Uh, this bothered me so much when I was watching the film. I, I I like William Hurt. It just he felt like the wrong actor for this role. And out of all the acting choices, that was the one I just kept cringing at. Well, and I, I'm not saying that a straight actor can't play a gay role. That's not what I'm saying. That's not my personal belief. And you can come at me if you want. We can no, have I that agree. different disagreement. But but William Hurt, yeah. I, He's just too straight. <laughs> well, I don't know about I don't know about that because I feel like you No, could, I don't mean like him as an actor, but him as playing the role. He didn't feel like the character. I, I kept thinking about like Patrick Swayze and Tu Wong Fu where you could have somebody who has the same sort of facial characteristics, that's not a problem, but who embodies a little bit more of that femininity that the character was supposed to have. And it felt like it wasn't really a role he was into. It felt like William Hurt playing a little too much of himself. And it felt too straight in a way. It didn't. It didn't capture Molina to me. Oh, okay. Well, I. Okay, I will say that the Academy Award, yeah, for Best Actor went to him, and I. Okay, so that's the first time in history that somebody playing an openly gay character won an Academy Award. So, like, that's good and historic. It was considered sort of avant-garde for its time. It was an independent film for sure, and it. And then even that, that it got as much notice as it did. It was kind of like broke back out of love attention because it was like the mainstream gay film that came out at its time. And there's, there are tons of really good indie um, LGBT films, but this was the one that was mainstream. And so that's the one that got all the attention. And and talking about the characterization of Melina, this, this might've been part of it is that William Hurt said that he didn't play Melina as a gay man. He played him as a woman trapped in a man's body, which is a choice that he made as an actor. And I, I don't know if that is, I don't sure if that was maybe the right choice. And now that you're saying that you think that he acted, it didn't make sense to you. Am I? Because, mm-hmm. in, and I, and I see this online. I see in my research that some people call Melina a transgender character. I would not 
say that. Because, yeah, let's get into that a little bit. Because full disclosure, having not lived through the 70s as a gay man, I went to my friends who are gay men who lived through the 70s and I said, okay, so if someone calls themselves she, they they, they identify as, as gay, they say they wish that they were a woman, they use women's names, trans or gay, and that's part of the culture. And the response that I got was that was part of the culture. There wasn't really this sense of trans. Like, of course, trans people have always existed, but it wasn't the way it was presented. And so people, even today, gay men will call each other girl and will will refer to have a female pronoun. And I don't know where that's going to go in the next 10 to 20 years, now that there is much more of a an emphasis and attention placed on pronouns and gender identity. But in the 70s, you could be a gay man who used female names and and would occasionally wear your hair, had a, you know, put put on a turban and, you know, be femme, be overly femme, but not be trans. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting issue. Um, So again, it's fairly obvious I'm not a gay man who lived through the 70s. Um, I did a paper on sort of the history of gay language, and particularly in the 70s, you do have these very structured gender roles. And so concerning these very structured gender roles, and how do you express yourself when you're not in this particular gender roles? So that had to evolve as a culture. You know, I, I remember it was maybe 10 years ago when if you had a gay wedding, it's like, well, who's going to wear the dress? And so that was still something that was you know, put on mainstream society onto a group that didn't conform to that and having to say, no, we don't conform to this. So these identity politics at the time, it's a complicated issue, but to me, Molina strikes me as somebody who is probably transgender, but that it's not a straightforward characterization. So very much could be just a, a gay person who is in gay culture. And at that time, gay culture was very, hey, girl, or calling each other female or having female pronouns. Um, and that's still in gay culture. But it, it reminds me a little bit of the Girls of Kabul, which we read. And sometimes you have people who want a certain position in society. And that's the only way that they can find it is through changing their gender role. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a lot about how society constructs us. And that is part of what the novel's talking about. Yes. Yeah, so society constructions. We have, um, we have Valentine, and even though he's much more into the political and economic issues, he's a Marxist, he doesn't even conform to his own ideals. He is in love with the posh girl. Yes, the bourgeoisie girl. Yeah, and so I find it very interesting how they're sort of you know, they are in prison physically, they're in prison in their culture. And even when they identify with this particular culture, it's still very much a prison that they take on themselves. Yeah. Well, we talked uh, during Girl Interrupted about the cages we put ourselves in, you know, yeah, and intentionally or not intentionally. So, yeah. So this is a book, you have to accept a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. And that's part of it. How comfortable are you with ambiguity? And I'm, (laughs) that's why it's like, I can understand why you're very frustrated with this, because it is in many ways a very frustrating novel. I just don't take hard lines on anything of, oh, he has to be gay. He has to be transgender. Of course, he's not transgender. To me, it's like, yeah, I can see both readings and neither one is exactly wrong. I don't know if I was being hardline, but yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, because of the of the style of writing, it's not a style that I particularly enjoy. The experimental style, a stream of consciousness, bugs the crap out of it, me. It yeah, just, me too. It always does. So, 
we had some of that, and then I'm like, who are we talking about? What's happening? It's so dreamy. It's so this. Yeah. The end made more sense because we knew we were in, in Valentine's mind, and we kind of got – we had the, the pieces that had been laid out, and so we kind of could put that together. But there's an earlier section of stream of consciousness where somebody rapes somebody, and I'm just like, I don't even know if this is a thing that actually happened or if this is not a thing that happened or if we're talking about something else, and – I, I liked some of the narrative flow. She was a woman who did this, this, and this, and then and then that led into, you know, this he was a man who did this, this, and this. Like some of the the and I can imagine that lyrically and from a language standpoint, because obviously we're reading a translation, was was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I can imagine it, that it would be beautiful, that the language picked was intentional and beautiful. And I know that we're reading a translation. I just I had trouble. I had trouble with it. And I and I was frustrated and the damn footnotes, man. They and, and not only okay, so yeah, we talked about the psychiatrist academic, but then there's this whole section of the footnote where so Melina's telling the story about Lena and Warner, the, the Nazi propaganda film. And then he stops at one point and then the footnote takes up the mantle and decides to tell us this like this whole thing as if it was a real it's not a real movie, but also in this very dispassionate sort of way. And, and I mean, if we're going to have to suffer through, uh, not suffer, that was about that. If we're going to have to live <laughs> through a movie explanation, like let, let, at least let the characters be the ones telling us about it, not the footnote, which is like this whole other character, but it's not the same character as the psycho- psychiatric academic footnote character. I, I was just frustrated. I, to me, it goes part of, um, and we talked about, a little bit about this, about constructed realities. We, we have Molina and during, like, this is something that comes up in his first movie. He's like, oh, let me remember. Oh, okay. I can't quite remember what's going on. And so even as he's talking about these films, he's embellishing, he's constructing, and it may be something that's sort of based on reality, but not quite. Right. He's adding in. He even admits, like, I, I round, I make it prettier. I make it better, yeah. you know, and stuff. And that makes sense. And then, then, of course, like, if you go and look up, like I said, the the zombie movie it's completely off the rails what he was saying was not at all what happened in this movie just as a side note i walked with the zombie is a terrible corny title but it's actually a fairly good film (laughs) (laughs) um so we have valentine interrupting him and is that frustrating to you as an audience member you're kind of trying to get into the story and then there's valentine going wait 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 tell me more about the secretary no don't tell me about that and isn't the footnote a sort of a mirror of this? And they're not always real. They're not. And even at the time, and this is why I find it interesting, there was psychology that was correct. It was psychology that, and I, I'm putting this in air quotes, correct at the time. But even so, having a constructed psychology beyond that, I think is interesting because we are constructing what do we think is reality? What is perception? What is reality? It's a great question in this. It is. It is. And I like the idea, like you're saying, it, the, the parallel structure of Melina telling the story and Valentine interrupting and the author telling a story and the footnotes interrupting. Like, I get that. And I can see that. And that's cool. I just didn't like it. That's understandable. I mean. Right. And I do see that it was intentional. I feel like that makes a difference. If it wasn't intentional, if you were just kind of slapped in there, then you'd be like, this is super stupid. But it's not (laughs) non-intentional. I mean, it's definitely there for a reason. And the parallel aspect of it, I get that. So I'm really glad they left that out in the movie. Very glad they left that out in the movie. Um, of course, then in the movie, we had to flush it out another way. So then we got our flashbacks and we got our stuff on the outside and we got, 
you know, some more dramatic. I thought it was it was interesting. The reason that they only used the one Nazi propaganda film in the movie was because they couldn't get the rights to the other ones. And they're like, oh, bummer. I guess we'll only do this one film. And I'm over here going, no, that makes it so much better. Because then we're not getting distracted with way too many storylines and way too many other places. And and when we're in the prison and then we escape into this film, but we're still trapped. There's really only two places to go. And one is the harsh reality of this prison. And the other is the over-romanticized in sepia tones, no less, version of the, you know this movie, this film, that this romance that Molina's painting. So I thought it worked as that contrast, and it would have been lost if we'd had several movies that he was talking about. Plus, oh my God, how long is this movie going to be if you're going to have five different movies in it? It's bad enough with two in it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then just like the parallels between, you know, at the very beginning of the Nazi propaganda film, Lenny, the character who, of course, Molina identifies with, says to somebody else, how could you fall in love with an enemy? You know, but then, of course, Molina falls in love with the enemy, you know, towards the end. And then Molina is kind of the enemy. Well, Molina falls in love with Valentin. Yeah, but Molina is also sort of the traitor. Oh, well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and wants Valentin to fall in love with him, which I don't think actually happened. I don't see that as a love thing. I see that as a kindness, humanity thing. But so transitioning mm-hmm. a little bit. To me, it's sort of an interesting thing that in order to get a deeper reading, sometimes you don't commit to a particular way of viewing a novel. And that way it allows you to have multiple perspectives on it, which is exactly what the novel is supposed to do. So we were just talking about movies and the, I don't know if you've ever seen like a behind the scenes of films. It looks so fake when you're watching actors act. And then when you see the film, it looks pretty natural and normal, but watching the actors act and seeing all the stuff that goes behind the film, it takes away all the glamor, mm-hmm. which again is a really nice parallel when you're looking at the story itself of, do you take it for the glamor? Do you take it for what it is? Is it a propaganda film that's really disgusting or is it a love story? And can it be both? I think that it's okay to look at things and, and realize that they can be both. I do think that sometimes we we want things to be one thing and not the other. I also think that you couldn't say it's only a love story. It's not a propaganda film because it was very clearly a propaganda film. So you can say the propaganda film part wasn't important to me the way Melina does. Um, I was there for the romance, but you can't dismiss the fact that it's a propaganda film. And let's say you paid money for it and then showed it to other people and then walked around and said how great it was. You're supporting the propaganda film. Like, mm. I think you have would have to own that even while saying, you know, it's kind of like, I, I don't go to Chick-fil-A, but I know people who go to Chick-fil-A and they're like, oh, but I really like these things and I don't support what Chick-fil-A stands for. And I'm like, well, sorry, like, and that's cool. But you, if yeah. you spend your money there, then like, they're supporting these things so own it say it doesn't matter to you like yeah i don't respect it but i can understand it like if you're like because okay for honest i go to starbucks i know some people have problems with starbucks i will shop at walmart i know people have problems with walmart i'm gonna own it yes i know walmart does crazy horrible awful things so does amazon so does target to me those are are things that i will give up i'll be like okay my morals can stand me to go to target and to amazon my morals don't let me go to chick-fil-a your morals are different it's not my job to tell you that your morals are right or wrong. I can point out that what you're doing is harmful to people. But then ultimately, if you decide to support Trump, I mean, I'm sorry, go to Chick-fil-A, then <laughs> that is a choice that you're making. Uh, I've had this conversation a lot recently is at what point do you stop, I guess, supporting somebody? So I had this issue when Mel Gibson went crazy pants 
But Apocalypto just came out, and Apocalypto is a really good film. From my perspective, it was a really good film, but it died at the box office, and part of that was Mel Gibson going crazy and saying some really stupid stuff to a female police officer. So at what point does like the crazy overshadow the art itself? Yeah. Anyways, where are your lines and, uh, and whatever? So obviously Molina is, is here for the romance. He's mm-hmm. here for the close-up shots in the dewy, soft-focused film of World War II. I, I really liked how in the film it was very called out. Valentine's like, wait, who was getting arrested in that scene? Who was the bad guys? Why are you saying they're funny looking? Like, what, what are you talking about? And Molina's mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know. Who cares? Those are the Jewish people. Like, they're getting rounded up and sent to concentration camps. Molina's just like, whatever. That's not part of the romance Valentine's story. Going, Those are yarmulkes. Why, yeah. why do you not know this? Seriously. Yeah. And Melina's like, whatever. I, someone's about to get kissed, you know? Like, <laughs> And I feel like we're all Melina sometimes. We're like, don't bring your politics into the thing that I love, you know? I, know, I, I just then, like that line. Someone's about to get kissed. Shut up. <laughs> right? What is that? There's a there's a thing that says like all your all your faves are problematic. Yeah, and I was just about to say something like that. Of it's okay to like a thing and to also have to understand why it's problematic. But once you do, you can't unsee it. Yeah, for sure. And for that sure. can be its own sort of thing. So, so we're gonna put um, Ender's Game on our list, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <That's a> <laughs> So what did you think about the parallels of the films that Molina is talking about as compared to what's going on in the story of itself? Brilliant. I think that the author did a great job of doing that. It was a little, a little bonk bonk on the head. It was a little overdone sometimes. I'm like, okay, I get it. But sure, that you want to, I don't like your footnotes. I'm not going to like the way you do everything, but fine. It's fine. It's fine. So yeah, no, I, Okay, so you, um, now normally we don't talk to each other before the podcast. We might just say, I hated the book and that's it. Because uh-huh. we don't do anything. We just want to have our conversation here. So there's we no. We want it to feel organic. <laughs> and we say it in a voice like that because it's so organic. Organic. <laughs> but I got a tweet from Kaylee, not a tweet, a, a, a text. A text of, oh my God, I hate this novel. And it was one line, she's a girl like no other. It's on the first oh, page. Oh, seriously. Okay, I opened this book. I open this book. On the first page, there's this, she's a girl like no other girl, which also already I'm like, uh, fuck you. And then, then this, this panther's looking at her with like, maybe it wants to eat her. Maybe something more basic. And I'm like, the panther wants to fucking rape her. I'm sorry for, I'm just sorry, all the F words that were allotted for this episode right here. But I was like, this first page is not filling me with, with hope. And okay. I got over it. I, I, okay. I don't hate the novel, but wow, that, that was, that was a lot in one page. Understandable. Um, so maybe you want to explain why a girl like no other is a problematic sentence for you. Okay. You know, when you're with a person and you think that they're great because you don't know yet that they're trash and they say, you're not like other girls and you think, oh, I'm special. And then later on, you have a feminist awakening and you're like, wait a minute, what's wrong with other girls? What? Why is it? Why? Wait, I'm sorry. Go record scratch. You're not like other girls. How? I, I can't, I, what are other girls? What, what broad paintbrush are you using? Are you saying that, wait, because I'm not wearing makeup right now, I'm not like other girls because girls who wear makeup are bad? Wait, I'm sorry, because 
I am eating a salad, like, oh, or because I'm eating a burger, or because I'm wearing size six, or because I'm wearing size seven. What the fuck are you talking about? And why are you doing it? Why? Why are you trying to make me feel special by denigrating my gender? Why? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was a Anyways, don't tell me I'm a girl like no other. <laughs> or... I'm not like other girls. So I had vague recollections from reading this 10 years ago, and I remember going, oh, okay, I, I understand that reaction, but to me, Melina empathizes with these female characters you know, when you see the descriptions of them. I thought this was actually very well done in the movie, where he is, in the first scene, William Hurt is kind of sitting with his little gown, and he's got his toenails sort of sticking out, and he is trying to be one of these female characters. And so that line, she's a girl like no other, if you take the view that he maybe is transgendered, was sort of an interesting statement. I don't even think he has to be transgendered to make that line work in this context. In the context of, of a gay man telling a story and identifying with the person who's not like other people and wanting to feel special, it makes sense. Obviously, this was the literal first page. And okay, what you may or may not know, I don't read the backs of these books. If it's a book I've never read before, I just start at the beginning. So Jennifer put this book on the list. I was like, Kiss of the Spider Woman. There's a picture of a woman with a spider on her face on the front of it. I'm like, gulp, okay. And then I open it. And literally, the first thing I read is she's a girl like no other. And I was like, oh, I got over it again. Like it was part of a larger context but yeah but so i'm the same so, with you i don't read the back but since i had some basic understanding yeah i had before, no knowledge i had no knowledge i was i didn't know that they were in a prison i didn't know anything i like to just start things and yeah. just figure it out as i go and not have that back of the book that so we've discussed this a little bit more i've gotten into rereading novels a lot more in the last five years or so because of stuff like this that you know, I wouldn't have picked up on that the first time I read it. I'm like, okay, she's a girl like no other uh, panther. But what? Okay, what the hell? And then this time, why I'm reading it, I know the characters more. Mm -hmm. It has a different connotation. Oh yeah, and I definitely feel like there is a benefit to rereading things, especially stuff like this, which is written on multiple levels. Yeah, and that's kind of the. To thing be fair, if I had read this, at a, if I picked this up at a store and I read the first page, I would have been mad about those two things on the first page. However. She really is a girl like no other. However, by the second page, <laughs> we have Valentine be like, she's not cold. If she's wrapped inside, she's not in some other world. That's a contradiction. And I'm already like, okay, I like you. So <laughs> here I am. I'm going to keep reading. You know, like it yeah. would not have turned me off. It just like, I I think I you sent me a message or something. I was sitting outside. And I had just started this book. And I was like, okay, here I am. And I opened it up and I was like, ah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I still, I, I really enjoyed the films as they related to the characters after I had read it the first time and when I was reading it the second time, seeing a little bit more of how they interacted because they're not clean parallels, but they're interesting parallels. Definitely. It is it is nuanced and textured. And I, I do think that this is one of those books that probably benefits from being read a second time. Uh, but you can feel free to skip the footnotes. Because there's a lot that you don't know from the beginning. It's just two people having a conversation. Yeah. And as you continue on, oh, they're in a prison. Oh, oh he's a revolutionary. Oh, he's gay. Oh, he's he's a spy. Like, all of that stuff comes later. Yeah, rereading it. or Actually, I didn't reread it because I didn't have time. But I started the movie, having now read the book, knowing that Molina is a plant, mm -hmm. definitely colors the whole first part of it. Yeah, and that's one of the things I liked about having the movie is that... 
you have so little to go by in the book. You basically have to almost invent these characters, which is, again, why I think it's so interesting when they're talking about the films and there's Valentine going, well, wait, what does the secretary look like? Yeah. Because he's trying to sort of fill in the gaps. And that's what you as an audience member are doing. You're filling in all these gaps. Right. So some of the dialogue, you know, you can read it one way and then the film chooses to portray it another way. Right. So I like seeing, oh, okay, that's the truth. That's how they read this particular dialogue. Because, yeah, you can read a sentence, but then how the actor chooses to say it can really change the connotation of it. And it oh, can absolutely. change the whole scene. So. Um, part of what uh, I look at with um, the Catwoman, and we've talked about the male gaze a little bit before in the past, is how male gazy is it to have this Catwoman and the architect is in love with her. But it's all, you know, it's it's all put through this lens of... How do we look at art? So is the principle, just the act of looking at a piece of art, of trying to capture the art, alienating to the subject, which is a fairly academic way of putting things. Is that a question? Was it rhetorical? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there, there's this principle that the act of watching something changes the behavior of that thing. Sure. So does... Anyone with kids will, will agree to that. Yeah. So is the act of a man watching a woman change the way she perceives herself and the way she perceives other women. Probably would depend on whether or not she knows she's being looked at. Yeah, so... Tie it in here. What are we talking about? Is is that alienating to a person? Like, if you're being watched and you start to see yourself in a different way, have you alienated the way that you even look at yourself? Because you're no longer just this person kind of walking around doing your own thing. You're now this person who's more aware of what you're doing. And in that process, is that a form of alienation? I don't know. I don't know if I'd use the word alienation because mm. that feels extreme, but awareness, I think self-awareness can come from that. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It can be a good thing or a bad thing. I know when I have done theater, somebody says the word hands and then suddenly all you can think about is what your hands are doing and where they're <laughs> touching and like, how, what do I do with my hands? And then you're like overly aware of your hands. And so like some actors have that problem and they need to like hold something or have something in their hands because people, when they're acting, they forget how you naturally just have your hands, right? And so I can see that in, in other ways. Like if somebody's watching you or you know that you're under scrutiny you can kind of be like well what am I supposed to be doing as in like right now where you're asking me this question I'm like I don't know I didn't think about it so I'm just going to talk <laughs> until maybe something intelligent comes out of my mouth or she gets tired and interrupts me and tells me to stop monologuing well I rarely make you stop because I'm like okay you'll run out of steam at something maybe and then I'll just say something and you can edit that in <laughs> <out. laughs> editing what wait talk about the change of the gaze because you know, people are only getting an hour and a half versus the three Trust hours me, that we you talk. Don't want the hours. <laughs> no, like your daughter is probably doing a thing where she's drawing. Well, if you ask her how she draws, it kind of makes her stutter, and she can't go. Well, wait, how do I draw? So it takes away just the ability to be of itself. Right. So tie this into the cat people, whatever <laughs> stuff, because I feel like I mean we're talking about these great abstract have, thoughts but you have this woman and she's watching the cat and she's like kind of obsessed okay with so panther. in the movie our our main our main female character the panther lady who is concerned because she's got this curse spends her time looking at the panther in the zoo and that's where she and the architect meet is because she's looking at the panther and she's drawing the panther and then eventually at the end of of the film she goes and lets the panther out and it kills her okay go ahead so you know, when we're first looking at it, 
all of the detail, and this is true with all the female characters, is that there's a lot of detail put onto the female characters. And almost none on the males. It's like they're attractive, they're not attractive. Oh, mm-hmm. he's got a club foot, he doesn't. He's weird looking and that's it. But the women, oh, well, she's very slender. Um, she's built, but she's not too built. She's a blonde. She's got this eye color. And so it's very, very detailed sort of imagery of all these women. And I'm kind of wondering, because we are dealing with a lot of sort of sexual identity themes here, how much of this is male gaze and how much of this is about how we look at art. So when we look at a film, do we look at the process of the film being made and does it take away from the enjoyment of just watching a film? When we read a book, do we read it critically? When we read a book critically, does that take away just from the enjoyment of reading? I think it probably depends on the point of the piece of art because there's art that's supposed to make you think and there's art that's supposed to entertain. When I read a book, I either want to escape or I want to be educated or I want to be inspired. Like there's a thing, you know, and I don't look at a book that it, that I've gone to for pure escapism to get something else from it. Does that make sense? Um so I guess it would depend on, on what the point of the piece of art is. So I feel like this book, the art, the author is definitely trying to challenge our assumptions. He's trying to teach us something, lead us somewhere. So it's almost begs to be looked at critically. I feel like if you just read this book on the surface level, you might enjoy it, but I don't think that you're engaging with it the way that the author wanted you to engage. That's why he put so many freaking footnotes in there. Like If he just <laughs> wanted to tell a fun story, he would have just told a fun story. So related to this, do you think fantasy and escapism are useful, particularly in these two character situation? Yeah, for sure. So we have Molina and he's trying to escape being an outsider and he imagines himself in a way that is not socially acceptable, but it's a way that he can be happy within himself. And then you have Valentine and he does his own little thing where he tries to fight the, you know, he's not fighting the patriarchy. I really think his... um his whole movement thing and his love of that is a different form. I mean, definitely a form of escape, but it's just as constructed and pretend, I think. Particularly at the end. And that's part of being in sort of a drug induced haze. Mm-hmm. You know, he's having this whole fantasy. So if we're looking at like how fantasy is used, the whole time Blee is happy to escape from fantasy. That's his thing. It kind of reminds me a lot of... And he's self-aware. Yeah. He says, like, I am doing this on purpose to escape from where we are. It does very much remind me of Blanche Devereaux of from A Streetcar Named Desire, where she has fantasies. That's the only way that she can exist. And she's very delicate. And then when she's confronted with reality, that just crashes everything around her so to me it's an interesting thing that valentine takes that on later as like his last moment in the book is escaping into that fantasy which is very depressing in its own way that's why i sort of wonder because valentine's the one poking holes in the fantasy the entire time well he is because it's it's like low-hanging fruit i feel like uh melina wasn't there to poke holes in valentine's he he, could have this could have been a very different book valentine could have been like Oh, the cause, the cause, the cause. And Melina could have been like, oh, well, I know about politics and political theory. And I'm going to poke holes in your assertions. And I'm going to da-da-da-da-da. But that wasn't what this was. So, and it, could, it wouldn't have been those characters. Well, no, it would have been a different person. And then, But Melina's not there to poke holes in Valentin's fantasy. He's there to kind of find out about it so that they can mm-hmm. get him. I did think it was interesting. Like, there's a couple of changes I want to transition this a little bit because I sure. feel like we've kind of done this. But there's a few changes that I think are, are relevant to this. In the book, Valentine is studying. Like, he talks about He's reading his books, his political manifestos and stuff. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why are they letting him read that kind of stuff when he's in prison for that? That was that took me out of it. But he talks a lot about it. Like, the fact that he's studying. In the movie, he's not studying. He's just 
there. He He's being tortured and he's there. So I thought that was very interesting. And then the other big change with his character, I thought, was that in the movie, he says, I don't want to be a martyr. I don't really want to do this. But this is like now who I am. And he didn't have another identity. And he, he kind of got swept away in the thing. And he didn't know how to get out of it. And there he is. Do you know what I mean? And so, and he says, I don't want to die. I don't want to be a martyr. Da, 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 da. In the book, there was none of that equivocation until kind of the end. And you could say deathbed confessional or, you know, whatever you want to say, like drug induced. How real is that? A stream of whatever. I so those are big changes in Valentine in his connection with his cause. Do you think that this is kind of, a, I would say, is this a a romance in that these characters come to an understanding of each other of Valentine taking on some of that fantasy and Melina becoming more political because that's what kills him in the end is politics. I don't know if I agree with your assertion. No, it's a question. I know, but you're asking me to pick between two things and I don't agree that that second thing is a thing. So I don't think politics technically kill him in the end because it's a political person with a gun who shoots him, but I don't think he got more political. No. I think he got swept away with the romance of being the heroine and was setting off on this grand adventure. He put his affairs in order and and now he's going to go off. And uh, In the movie, he put his affairs in order. He took out all of his money. He made arrangements for someone to care for his mom. He said goodbye. He did these things. He knew he was either going to go to his death or go on to a new life, right? In the book, he actually got a job on the outside. Yeah, he was looking off towards the prison on a regular basis, but he had a job. He'd made connections with his friends. He was doing stuff. I felt I feel like he was as surprised to die in the book as, you know, as anybody else. In the movie, I feel like he kind of expected it. So that it felt like that was a big change. And and neither place do I feel like he got the political fever. I feel like he got a kiss and then he felt like he owed something. And was swept away in the romance and wanted, you know, maybe something so else. So from Lily's perspective, do you think he's one of his femme fatales who dies at the end? Yes. For a romantic cause. Yes. And then he has that moment in the car in the in the in the movie where the guy's threatening him and he's making a choice to stay silent and then to put his head down. Um in the in the book he because that part of the novel is structured in a way of the the report by the secret police it's like subject was shot subject died like it is so and then in the movie to go back a little bit so he has his moment in the car but then they literally dump his body in the trash so in both cases he might have seen himself as having this romantic femme fatale thing but to the outside world no somebody just got dumped a body in the trash or subject was shot subject died the end do you know what i mean and that's yeah. so sad it's sad that you know, obviously he's dead. He doesn't know now, but like it's sad that he didn't get his little moment. It's a rather inglorious yeah, sort of thing to happen. Exactly. When he's but got I, all these fantasies, and again, that's that parallel of you have the fantasy and then you have the reality, right? And they're just. But I don't think he got politics. No. But I think it's interesting that he died in the way that Valentine was supposed to. That he dies as a martyr, even though Valentine, that's not what he wanted. Mm-hmm. But that was what he was supposed to do as part of his cause. Yeah, and ironically, if Valentine, if we take the end of the novel to say that Valentine got kind of an overdose of morphine by a friendly nurse who didn't want him to have to suffer anymore, and then floated away and died, Valentine's floating away and died is that romantic swimming out, you know, the sun is setting, the, the film is about to start rolling credits, it's all very soft focused, <laughs> romantic ending. So, okay, they kind of, they switched their places there, which is you know, 
So we've talked about a bunch of different things. We've talked about the differences in their characters. Is there anything else major you want to hit on? What about power? What about power? I find it sort of interesting that these two characters, they don't really like each other in the beginning, and you can see where they starts to change. But I find it sort of interesting that even though Melina is taking on this characteristic feminine role of being weak, he's also taking on this feminine role of femme fatale and mother, which are both very controlling in the end. And during the first part of the novel, you have Melina telling this story, and then Valentine's the one who kind of directs him to do stuff. So continue, stop. Well, what about this? Tell me about that. And then you find out Melita is really just there to get information on Valentine. And it does change a lot of the perception of their dynamic. So I, I found that to be a really fascinating thing is, do these characters like consciously try to control each other? Or is this something that is just sort of a human nature of dominance and not dominance? And how do we define females in this particular form? Because in a lot of ways, Melina is defined as being weak. He cries. He has like these traditionally weak feminine characteristics and i am again putting this in air quotes because it's or not in 1970s at least it's called out i would say like in the movie you know he's crying so you know stop it you're acting like a like what like a woman you can say it why is it bad to be a woman why are women the only ones who are allowed to be sentimental and to be sensitive if more of you acted like us we wouldn't have these stupid wars i'm like Preach, sister. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things I liked about their names is Melina uses the more feminine last name that he has rather than Louis. And then Valentine. Valentine's a romantic name, but it's his first name. Isn't so it Valentine? It is Valentine, but it's still, it's still romantic. <laughs> Don't take away my romance. Okay. <laughs> now who's the Melina? <laughs> but I, I find that power dynamic to be really interesting of a mother being a caretaker and having control and not having control and that's something that valentine keeps going after him is he doesn't like these passive feminine characteristics and he's supposed to be you know what is masculine what is feminine yeah they have a whole conversation about that too What's a real man? So we've talked mostly about the book. Should we say anything about the movie? Well, I like, like I said before, the adaptation, obviously, it's an uphill battle because you have just dialogue and then you have to flesh it out. On the one hand, that gave them a lot of freedom. They could do a lot of things. They weren't beholden to something. On the other hand, they don't want to detract from the words because the words are the most important part. So I like the subtle things that they did where Valentin's back, there was blood coming Mm. through his shirt. Um, so we know he would have been tortured. And then like throughout, you can see the blood get worse and better and stuff. Cause you could, you know, so you could kind of clock that. So I thought that was well done. Um, getting the bigger shots of the prison. It was interesting because until we see all the big shots of the prison and the walk or Melina walking around and all the guards and stuff, there's so many prisoners. All of the rest of the cells are jam packed with people. And then these two have this quite spacious cell really if you if you think about it they've got their beds they've got a little i don't know it's not a hot plate but they've got like a an area over here where they have the candles and their stuff and there's you know he's got some clothes and he you know all of this stuff there's a there's a lot of stuff in there and i was like that's you know comp- it's a swankier cell compared to all the cells around them and so that clues you in that there's something special about these two and that they're, that they're different early on we now we know why but you know um so I thought that the movie did a good job of, of putting us in a time and a place. And I liked some of the, the smaller things. I don't think I needed Molina's flashback to him being a, a window dresser. We saw that. And, uh, okay. We spent a lot of time outside of the prison. 
I mean, that was a whole large chunk of the movie. Not large, but it was it was longer than it was yeah. in the book, for sure, of him doing And he didn't do as much as he did in the book. In the book, he did a lot more after he got out of prison. And in the movie, he didn't do as much, but we saw more. But we saw the gay scene, basically. And we saw him going in and seeing his friends. And we saw this and we saw that. And we got the flashbacks to the, the waiter. And the waiter did not look at all like I imagined based on the book, but sure. Um I don't know. I, th- I thought it was a good adaptation. I love the fact that they dropped the footnotes. I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> beating a dead horse here. Um, I think that they did a good job of going from six films into just the two, basically the one, the, the Nazi one, and making those parallels very, very severe, very obvious. And then this little spider woman, tiny bit, you know, the romance at the end, the idea of the spider woman who's Melina caught in her own web, like Melina's caught in his own web mm-hmm. of lies because he starts as a plan. Then, of course, he falls in love with Valentine. I do think that he cared for Valentine. I thought that was pretty apparent in both places. So, yeah, no, I think the adaptation was well done. I kind of agree with you with the casting. I don't know, William Hurt. And I guess probably because I've seen him other stuff that I just, it's, it's, it's just a, it was, it, whatever. But, you know, that was earlier in his career. Yeah, for me, and- it was an appearance thing. It was just he did not have the character. An Academy Award for this is what a brave film that was rather than is it really good acting. Yeah, I actually feel like Raul Julia. Raul Julia did a better job of an acting. I felt like that character was like seething underneath and it was almost at the surface and not. I felt like that character actually had some growth and development. I, I, yeah, I... If I was up, if I had been the Academy in 1985 or 86 or whatever, I would have probably been more on the uh, Raul Julia's side of things. I really like Raul Julia, and it's always a shame to me that his last film was Street Fighter. Raul Julia had so many good films, and then that was his last film. <laughs> but yeah, so that that's, I guess, my opinions on the, on the yeah. film. The film was fine. Um, I like that we've come a long way since this film, you know, culturally. We, we've grown and progressed. Yes, I'm glad. Yeah, because there there is some stuff in here that you it know, definitely makes me wonder if what in thirty years people are looking at films and stuff today that were made today and they go, oh my god, in two thousand and nineteen they had no idea. Can you imagine they were still doing this? Like, oh yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, we might look at our podcast and go, oh no. Yeah. So yeah, anything else that you want to go through? We added a character in the movie of the deputy, kind of like the warden. I thought it was interesting. The warden was in a wheelchair. That was an interesting stylistic choice in the movie. It wasn't like important at all it was just it was there and i'm like hooray for representation like you know it that's cool yeah, i was kind of wondering if that had to go with that sort of that theme of masculine versus feminine and again classically feminine is being weak and he's this masculine presence and how that sort of relates in that dynamic with this one well i, I definitely see that they were doing a parallel between because in in the book it's just the warden and we don't know anything about the warden except that they're the warden, whatever. In the film, we've got the warden and then the deputy. And the warden is like the one who's making the choice decisions. But then the deputy is this guy who's the action figure, who's got the gun, who's out there running around and doing stuff. So if you want to make a, a comment on masculine feminine, I hope not, because then that puts the feminine person in the wheelchair for some reason. Which no, uh, yeah, because that's why I keep doing, and it's hard to, to do this on a podcast, but I keep putting air quotes. Okay, classically, this is not my No, opinion. no, I understand. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, I hope that that's not what they were doing, because mm. it, it, it it's one thing to say these characters were going to have, like, the flip, the two sides of the same coin, the violent, the not violent, like the good cop, the bad cop thing, which is kind of more what I was thinking it was supposed to be, the good cop, bad cop, dealing with Melina. And then... 
but then we make it extreme. We're like, oh, and the good cop is in a wheelchair. And now if you add in the layer and the good cop is the weak in the wheelchair and is supposed to represent the feminine, I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, I feel like when it, you're trying to figure out, okay, why did they make this particular Yeah, choice? I don't know why yeah. they did that. So that I, I did bump on it. Oh, I did so- notice that the, the sex happened twice in the book and once in the mm-hmm. movie. And I, you know, oh, my God. I heard what I was about to say, and I, I'm, I'm trying to rephrase it. I understand that the homosexual sex scene is a climax of sorts. I can't even <laughs> say it out loud. <clears throat> it is the... No pun intended. The, the pinnacle of their... It's the, of their relationship. <clears throat> okay. In the movie, it is, though. It's building... <laughs> It's building up to that, and then that happens, and then and then there's the falling action, and you know, okay, we go on from there, and blah blah blah. The falling action, yes. In 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 the film, you have basically the two parts. You got the stuff in the prison, and then the stuff outside of the prison afterwards, after Melina's release, and the climax of the prison part is the sex. In the book, though, it's not. The sex happens earlier, and then it happens again, and it did feel more organic mm. to me in the book, partly because it wasn't rushed, partly because it wasn't the last night and, and you know, all of that stuff. Um, and you did have different emotions that go into it. You know, the first time it's kind of one thing, and the second time it's kind of another thing. Yeah, and and so... And that I, felt a little bit more real. It did. It felt, you know, it did. It, it felt justified, yeah. I feel like. If this movie had been made... But, and everything was the same, and it was, you know, two guys in prison, and da, da 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 and it wasn't based on a book, I would say, why is the sex here? Now, I know why it's there, because it was in the book. But in the book, I felt like it did it, it served a different purpose than it did in the movie. Would you have been happy with just the kiss? Because that Yes, is- actually, the kiss was way more intimate in yeah. some ways. And the, it was daytime, like, it was light, there, it wasn't in the dark, it yeah. was... In, it was on, in your face. It was on your face. And it wasn't just a little peck. I mean, it was an actual, like, kiss. And I felt like it responded to a need. Melina wants to be the romantic heroine. They get their kiss. You know, that um, that's the pinnacle of romance. And it, it is so intimate and it is so symbolic. And then you have, like, all of that stuff. And then you have, like, Melina's own layers of the Judas kiss because he's, you know, he has been the Judas. But, like, basically, I felt like at that point that when the kiss happened is when he decided, you know, to do what uh, Valentine has been asking him to do. I... I don't know. If it had just been the kiss and there had been no sex, I would have considered it somewhat cowardly because, especially at you know the time, and even now, I would still consider it a bit cowardly of, oh, okay, you just didn't want to go there. But but why go there? I think the going there has to serve a point. And I don't, I don't really... In the movie, it didn't feel like that point was justified and paid off. In the book, it felt like the sex was there as a kindness and as a Valentine's change in the idea of what makes a man a man Mm -hmm. and i okay i I personally don't feel like sex is something that you owe someone or sex is something that you give someone as a thank you like to me if you want to say thank you a starbucks gift card is fine i don't need sex Mm -hmm. from you so unless the author in the book was saying Oh, they fell in love, but I didn't feel like they fell in love. I felt like one of them was in love. I don't feel like Valentine was in love with Melina in either place. So then you have to ask, why did he have sex? Was he was he just horny? No, that diminishes it. Was he just trying to make Melina feel better? Yes. And and so 
that to me is kind of, that's a little cringy too. Like you're sad and you've been nice to me, so I'll fuck you and that'll make you feel better. Like that's twisted. And and I'm not super comfy with that. Neither is the cat. (laughs) (laughs) That's podcast cat. I would put it wasn't just comfort. It was mostly comfort, but people have sex for, you know, whatever reasons. And it doesn't have to be that you're just in love. It could be, and I don't think it's just horniness. I don't think he's in love. I, I think there was just a combination of emotions, but it feels like a cheat because so often in fiction, and, and this is why you can't just read the story as its own story. You have to put it in the context of stuff. That's why the death scene at the end is so cringeworthy of, oh, they're gay and in love. Well, they have to die because whenever you have you know gay characters, they die. And it's rare that you get like the happy ending. So to me, it's also rare that you get like an actual sex scene. It's usually hinted at, especially if you do have gay characters pre-1970s. It's hinted at maybe one of them's gay, maybe one of them's in love with the other, but it's never consummated, nothing ever happens of it. And so it does feel like a cheat to me of, oh, you just didn't want to put this in. It would be a cheat if they hadn't, is what you're saying. Yeah, it would have felt like that to me. Okay. And I didn't mind because... And let's be clear, for mm-hmm. those of you who maybe haven't seen the, the film or read the book, it's, it's not explicit. Oh it's no. not, like, graphic at all. For in the, in the book, because remember, we just have dialogue. It's, oh, does this... Oh, yes. No, a little bit more. Okay. Okay. I mean... Like that, and then yeah, and, you can and, tell they're having sex, but there's but, nothing really right. And yeah. then the other one, the other time they do it, it's like, oh, you look, you know, won't you get cold taking your clothes off? Oh, oh, well, here, let me lift my legs. Okay, in the film, he blows out the candle. Yeah, and it's faded black. And then, and then we have like the little tiny ember that is on the screen, and we hear in the background, oh, oh, I'm squished up against the wall. Oh, let me lift my legs, and then that's the end. So it's we don't see anything. Like, that, that's, I guess, we see the kiss. Yeah. And I, I'm glad if they hadn't kissed, I would have been pissed. Right? I mean, obviously. <laughs> but, like, the kiss but I think was more symbolic. Of choices of having the sex be fade to black, that's fine. It doesn't have to be explicit. And it would be weird if it was explicit. Yes. And the kiss should be there. It should be, let's call it out. Yeah. So but, I'm happy with both of those choices, but I want both of those in. But did you mind that they didn't have sex more than once in the film? No. That didn't bother me. See, because thought, they have to cut so much out. Right, but I feel like it changed what the sex meant when mm. they made it the focus of of their relationship, like the end of their relationship and this major important part. I feel like that wasn't the key moment of their relationship. I feel like when Melina was taking care of Valentine was a key moment in their mm. relationship. And I feel like when he said, you know, what's a woman? And when they had this conversation, and I feel like the kiss part was a major part of their... I feel like the sex happened... And we can't say, you know, diminish it of its importance, especially to Melina. But I, I, I feel like it got way more weight in the movie than it did even in the book. And, and then that just didn't feel justified to me. To me, it, the kiss, the kiss is still where you really get that relationship sort of finalized because it is explicit. It's in the light. It's there. And there, there's no hiding that. And so for me, that is still like where it should be. And so to me, if you have to, t- you have to take stuff out because there's only so much you can put into a movie and not go crazy with how long it is. So footnotes are out. A lot of the movies are out. They keep a couple of them and taking out one of the sex scenes 
felt fine because you still have that shared intimacy, but it's still, it's still something that they don't want to talk about. Valentine doesn't want to talk about it. And that's the thing. Like the next day, Melina's like, are you okay with what happened? And Valentine's like, yeah, but I don't want to talk about oh, it. Oh man, he's sitting there. He's got his legs crossed. He's bouncing his foot. He's like that freaking cat that ate the canary in the movie, <laughs> for sure. In the book, it was definitely more like, I don't want to talk about it. Like that's not a thing. Let's downplay it. So Okay. okay, well, but, listeners, know. we invite you to read the book, watch the movie, and then tell us whether or not you felt cheated out of not getting two sex scenes, off-screen sex scenes in the in the film. Okay. Um, how do you feel? You always ask me questions, so I'm going to ask you one now. How do you feel about characters being stand-ins for their class, gender, identity, etc.? So when you have a, a gay character who is also all these other things, do you think that that informs how we how society sees all those other things as this is So a, I've asked this symbolic. question before um, mm-hmm. uh, of people from marginalized groups because I'm interested in what they have to say. Um, do you feel that it's worse to have bad representation or to have no representation? And one of the problems is, is you do have kind of this tokenism. So William Hurt in this film, he's not he can't just be a gay character. He has to represent every gay character and you can't do that. So if you have a trans character, that trans character can only be that trans character. They can, almost can't be human because they're the one trans character. So to me, that that puts an undue amount of pressure on one particular character to be everything. And you can't. You can't be everything. You just are representing one tiny part of what... Right, but do you think society sees that and society goes, oh, yeah, well, that was that was Melina. That was one guy. Or do you think that in 1985, people are like, yep, well, this reinforces what I thought. I thought that gay people were pedophiles and also sissy boys and also likely to, you know, be government spies because they don't want to do the torture. I can't answer for all of society, but my impression, unfortunately, is that if you don't have other people that you know, and you can go, wait, I know a gay person, I know multiple gay people, and they're not like this, or they are like this, or there's some aspect here and there. If you don't have any exposure to that, then it can be very problematic. You know, um, for the longest time, there was no exposure of trans men in media. Like, there's nothing. And every once in a while, you'd see, you know, trans women, but... It's it's very cartoonish, it's very stereotypical, but is it better to know that this exists? And so you can go, hey, wait, maybe this is me, and to have some sort of identity, even if it's not correct. Or do you just not want to have that at all? So to me, it's it's not an easy question to answer. And it's it's unfortunate, and that's why I think there needs to be more media representation. Right, because then it would be, the, the onus would be off to be all things to all. Yeah. yeah, and it would be good. I want LGBT characters, I want women of color characters, and I want them to be multifaceted and complex. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, you have to kind of take what you can get, which is unfortunate. And I like that there's more independent filmmaking, more independent books, and you can get much better representation now. Yes, Again, glad that we've progressed. I think this is a good time to say this. So we have a quote from the author. The book is very much about the Argentina of 1973. There was ideological repression and social repression. I wanted to put those things together. The rightlist movement was suspicious of any leftist ideology and the leftists were um, puritanical in the sexual area. The repression was expressed in different ways. What I mainly wanted to talk about was the possibility of people changing. And I think he succeeded. Yeah, I think that's a really good quote. Okay. Do we have any takeaways or I definitely think that the book is worth reading and it's worth reading more than once so I was happy to do that uh the movie's the movie it's it's fine it, it it's fine 
Yeah. I would say if, if you want to watch a movie about this particular subject matter, then this movie will work for you. But if you want to watch a movie about gay men in the 70s, there's, there's better ones. And if you want to watch a movie where William Hurt does acting, there's probably other ones. And yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm The movie was fine. But the book was definitely better than I thought it was going to be after page one. So <laughs> I'm glad I wrote it. And I do think that it, it can benefit from a second read. Uh, again, especially since during the second time, you could just skip all of those stupid footnotes and move on with your life. Yeah, I kind of breezed through the footnotes to go, oh, yeah, I remember reading that. Okay. Yeah. And um, I'm really happy that we've progressed as a society. Yeah, I guess that's really my lesson. Like my, if, if there's a moral message you're meaning from the book or the movie, it's, God, I'm so glad we don't live then. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, thank you for putting it on our list. <laughs> I'm glad that's the end result. Yes. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by viewers or listeners like you who donate at the $1 or the $5 level on our Patreon. Remember, that's patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. If you are a patron of ours, you will have access to our list of upcoming titles so that you can read along or read ahead and be prepared. And then you can skip our recap at the beginning of the <laughs> of the episodes, or at least have a, a more fine tuned sense of knowledge of what we're talking about. Now, if you aren't a patron, you can still help us by like, share, subscribing, and give a review. Tell us what you think. We are interested in hearing that. And if you also think that we're wrong, Email us, and yes. we might even discuss it at some point. Negative reviews, you can just email right over. But those positive <laughs> reviews, please make sure you put them on uh, iTunes, because that will help other people find our lovely podcast, and that will help us continue to be able to make this lovely podcast. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. For sure. Okay. Thank you all very much. All right. Bye.